Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 89. Hey guys, welcome. Um, so, it was a long week last week and I got the episode out late in the week and even had bad audio this time around, which I seem to do that when I get in in a rush, but audio's fixed and it's back out there. So sorry, but I'm sure most of you by now will have figured out that the audio is already fixed. So what's happening? We got some new OS updates. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So 10.2 is out. And uh, so that'll be what the final version of Xcode 8.2 which would mean that this would be the final version of Swift 2.3? Is that true? Or later, Xcode 8.3 won't have 2.3 support, if I remember correctly? Sounds right. That's what the release notes said. But that's probably a springtime release, somewhere in the, the March time frame, I would suppose, when they release their new iPads and whatnot. And I suspect, you know, eight eight two of Xcode will play nicely with eight three and above for a while. I yeah. think uh, oh. my biggest challenge has been trying to get seven three the run on Sierra, which between crashes and not being able to uh, push up a build, it's been pretty much a no go. <laughs> well, Is this for your backwards CocoaPods project? that and anything else that I haven't been able to get around to updating yet. So 7.3 is is not uh, not not one I can use on on Sierra. So I usually have to ask somebody else who's still running El Capitan to do the build. Well, that's the catch because Apple is pretty diligent about dropping support for older versions of the OS in Xcode. And by older, I mean like the second to last released one. Yeah, current minus so, one is a pretty common strategy. Yeah, but with their dot three releases, it's typically just current. Yeah. So come this time spring, I would expect not to be able to run 8.3 on um, LCAP. Yeah, I think most of our projects we've got upgraded now to eight there's maybe one or two that um are kind of in maintenance mode that might need a little tlc to run cleanly on eight but nothing major yeah well it's this is more of a uh, fyi to those listeners that have to uh, do ios development inside of big enterprises that kind of move slowly on getting their operating systems on their Macs updated. Yeah. I think, you know, anybody who's stayed with Objective-C probably isn't going to have much of an issue other than like better static analysis complaining about things that maybe previous versions didn't. Love me some Objective-C. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, at some point too, that the libraries that you're using, even if you're not using Objective-C stuff, yeah, some of your libraries start supporting Xcode 
whatever only features. Yeah, yeah, and that's why you should not use third-party dependencies. <laughs> Still, yeah. That's such a touchy subject. Yeah. Yeah. Being in okay. a, being in a company now where they don't use a lot of third-party dependencies, I can I can see the the reasoning and it's definitely less of a headache but you're you're still you're left with uh, some some vanilla code or more vanilla code and well, you uh, end up having some... a lot a lot of supporting code that's not directly at the main point of the business of the application it's you know some utility class or library that really doesn't make sense for for some companies to maintain themselves yeah, so I I see a lot of uh, internal networking stacks now. It's like <laughs> instead of learning AF networking or or even just straight up URL session, now I've got to learn this other weird format. Yeah, we've inherited code like that. That you know, big company, um, you know, millions of users built their own network stack and it's uh it's so ingrained network stacks especially are are, are horrible for that because you know you think you know nothing's going to change but it does and that code ends up everywhere and getting it replacing it is non-trivial yeah yeah networking ones in general and then even when you have something like af networking it's not uncommon to build even a wrapper around that, and then right. yeah, then you then you end up in situations where I want to use Swift code and and AF networking. Yeah, it works with Swift, but it's not really Swift. So maybe I should use Alamo Fire. Maybe I should wrap that in my framework too. And it just kind of gets really gross. And that was one of the challenges with RESTKit getting updated is it was dependent on old version of AF networking and they needed to change and the AF networking team wasn't going to do an update to a very old version and RESTKit wasn't going to be able to update to the new version of AF networking. It's just kind of an unfortunate situation. And I think what they ended up doing as a workaround was forking the networking and changing the prefix for all the classes. Oh. I think the word you were looking for is that's a cluster. <laughs> you call that a cluster <laughs> yeah. in the business. And not a yeah. class cluster. Yeah. So not to pick on any specific libraries. I mean, well, there are plenty of libraries that seemed great at the time that you look back and just go, oh, no, that was so bad. I remember, you know, this was probably seven years ago or so, you know, finding ASI HTTP requests and thinking, oh, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. like compared to like getting into a low-level networking library, yeah, you know, we didn't have NSURL session or any anything like that. And then uh, you know, a year or two later, uh, the internet turned on it. Like everybody was using it and then AF networking came out and everybody turned on ASI. Yeah. 
Well, then you got 320. Yeah, 320. For you. Yeah. I hope you don't anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's... Yeah, that one was probably just bad from the, the start. But... but a lot of people used it. I mean, it was, you know, at, at that point in time, there wasn't a very large open source community. Yeah, this was like the iOS 2 and 3 days. I mean, we were still trying to figure out what best practices even were, much less applying them to libraries that we put out. So I don't fault people. No. Yeah, you wanted one of those uh, Facebook uh, kind of of like a collection view menu that they had in the early days. Everybody wanted that. So rather than build your own, people would bring in 320, which brought in a whole bunch of other things. And, or you wanted a drop-down list or whatever it was. You know, 320 was probably the, the biggest example at the time of open-source iOS components. Yeah, and really give Facebook credit because they put that out there for everybody to use. It's just that people grew up and then it wasn't such a good thing. Yeah. I look back at code I wrote a year ago and go, oh, that could be better. And the further you go back, the worse it gets. Yeah. And that's that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, when you start to think about bringing it in or even building your own, you know, look at that dependency tree. Is this going to be code that's going to be everywhere? And is it going to be something that I can easily update or is it going to end up being a an anchor that's on your app architecture that's slowing you down from from making changes and improving your app right but i i can't speak for ResKit specifically because i never really used it but say a networking stack ideally shouldn't affect that many of your classes because Ideally, you're you have a nice modular architecture where only you know a small handful of your classes are actually making networking calls, and that's about it. Yeah. But, well, this is this is where you know you have a framework that's doing more than just one responsibility. It's also right. in charge of the mapping, so you end up you know all your model objects end up having this mapping code in it, and there's setup process and ResKit typically is used with core data. So then there's this whole core data stack that you have to worry about. And then if you're doing test-driven development, your tests end up creating all these kind of mock um, object mapper setups that sit in order to test your objects and make sure the mapping is working properly. So even your tests have that dependency and it it kind of grows from there. Uh, but again, that's part of that is it's, it was the intent was kind of a one-stop shop for networking, object mapping and persistence. And in hindsight, you know, it might be better to decouple those things. Yeah. There's definitely a sweet, sweet spot between say a micro framework and something that's more, generally useful and ResKit probably takes it way too far one way and then something that you know say like just adds the result type to swift takes it 
the other direction too, you know, too far in the other direction where you just have one class in there or something. And everybody has their own copy of it because you, there's not yeah. like one result type that you can that like reachability can. like Apple does. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So we were kind of talking about X, new version of Xcode coming out um, not too long from now, and uh, had a little bit of an update that Swift 3.1 is planned for spring of 2017. Uh, with code changes to be completed by January 16th. Um, I couldn't find it too much detail on what's going to be in it. I think it's mostly just clean up. It's supposed to be have source compatibility, so it shouldn't be any major updates for for anyone. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to a Swift version that doesn't break backwards compatibility. Yeah, I think this is kind of a kind of a clean up or you know general bug fix release just to kind of clean the deck to work on Swift 4. Which will be nice. So I'll jump in on board then. <laughs> <laughs> well, 4, you know, there's no guarantees for 4. Well, they said they wouldn't say they're going to have binary compatibility and then not. Oh, wait. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely the, the stable ABI is definitely high on the list. I think uh, figuring out kind of the memory model and there's some updates to generics. So I don't know if we're going to get a whole lot of like new functionality or or yeah any any real cool programming tools. I don't know if we'll get like more dynamic language features, but hopefully it'll mean that we we can do things like include a framework that was built with a different version of of Swift and not have to worry about updating all your dependencies. Yeah, I think that'll be a big thing once we get that. But that's that's not until next fall, I guess. Yeah. Until we get Swift 4. Yeah, it's going to be a while. Yeah, so <laughs> I did have a uh, I guess a watch watch OS three experience i think it was yesterday an experience yeah you know so finally i yeah i haven't really used a whole lot of the features in watch os 3 other than um i did set my watch to always come back to the same app that it was on before like you do argo so then, I don't so, know if I still do. What app do you have it come back to, or is it just the last one you used? Just the last one you used. Gotcha. Yeah, so that, that's a little bit more convenient to use the watch that way. Um, I actually use reminders that way when I'm going grocery shopping because I put my grocery list as to-do items in reminders, and uh, I don't have to take out my phone at all. I just pull out the watch, scroll up and down a little bit, and then check off an item. But... <laughs> so the, the the one the one feature that they demoed that I thought was really not a great idea was when you hold down on that uh, long button underneath the crown that used to uh, pop up your contacts well when you hold that down it would call 911 for you so my 
laser printer had a paper jam. So I <laughs> had my hand in there and I was trying to fish out this paper and, and pull it pull it out and all of a sudden I started hearing this uh like emergency tone coming out of my out of the printer. I'm like, well that's weird. I'm just pulling paper out. And uh I pulled out my watch and then it says, Oh, calling nine one one uh oh. And I it took a took me a little bit to read how to turn it off to cancel it. And it's not like a big close button or X button or anything. It's just you have to like force press on the, the watch face or the screen. And by the time I did that, I think it already had called nine one one and and maybe rang a couple of times. And so they ended up calling me back and I had to sheepishly explain to the lady that my watch called 911, not me. And, <laughs> <laughs> and for some reason, it didn't phase her. I think she might have had this experience already. Oh, you're the third one of these today. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if that was such a, a great idea to add to the yeah. to the OS. Yeah, I kind of thought it would be problematic. And, and that button, historically, had been you press and hold to power it down. And I think depending yeah. on how you've got it set, it you still do that to power it down, and then you've got an option to do an emergency call. Um, right, and if you I, keep I holding it, apparently. I think maybe you've got to turn opt-in to the emergency call. Maybe you can opt out. But, I mean, not to say that, like, this is a great thing for 911, I think. Um, I think John Oliver had done a a bit on how 911 is way overloaded and, and behind in technology. You know, butt dials are still like a large percentage of their calls. Uh, <laughs> they don't get GPS coordinates for calls. Like Uber can get your exact location, but 911 can't. Right, in a lot of locations. GPS. Yeah, so it's it's kind of a, a weird thing. Like theoretically, like the watch is a great thing for them because I assume it's give you your exact location. But there is probably a lot of accidental dials. Well, it just makes a phone call through your phone. Well, it might. Per I, I'm assuming that Apple talked to nine one one first responders and and solved the GPS location issue, which is. A common problem for nine one one. Like no, I th I think you might be reading too much into it. Uh, I was I wishful thinking, I suppose. Like that seems like a very solvable problem, right? And and you know they do kind of call out like Uber and you know it's the pizza place and whoever can get your exact location, but not nine one one. Right. Well. Yeah. And it's. Mostly because you're making a phone call rather than some other kind of contact method. Yeah. And, you know, the other end of that conversation is antiquated. Right. So I don't know if there's a way to turn that off. I, I kind of hope there is, but... I feel like when I updated that there was some... some message about enabling it or disabling it 
You see, I don't think I ever saw that. I could be remembering wrong. I saw a bunch of betas, so who knows? Yeah, I have no idea. But be careful about which hand you stick in the printer to take care of the paper jam. That's all I can say. Good info to have. <laughs> yeah, I guess if it happens again, I'll be in, in big trouble or some kind of trouble anyway. So we had some discussion today about UI testing. Automated UI testing, yeah. Yeah. Personally, don't believe in it, but you guys want to hash it out a little bit? Um, I I think the general premise, like, you know, I, I work on some projects that have fairly detailed scripts of how to test the application from the user standpoint. And, you know, theoretically, if you can write a script like that, you could automate it. Um, but, you know, we kind of find two things in practice that, you know, you kind of have to manage your investment. You know, first is that UI tends to be fairly brittle in UI tests. So, like, maintaining that tends to be a decent amount of work. And the tools aren't necessarily completely there to, to make that easy. So, you know, we, whether it's Xcode UI testing or some other tool, you're usually building tools on top of tools in order to make it easier to write and maintain the test. And, and that's all well and good. But then, like, the second part of the issue comes in, you know, even if you have the manpower to keep those tests running smoothly, you then have to deal with the fact that, uh, you know, a large part of that UI testing, the manual testing is kind of visual um, quality assurance and, you know, knowing that a button's not in the right place or or text is being clipped or whatever uh, the issue may be, you know, you really can't get away from the, at least some level of manual testing and visual QA. So, you know, you do have the option of, there's some tools out there that'll do snapshots where you can basically compare uh, the screen to an image. And I think some of them will give you a little bit of uh, slack on, you know, it's not necessarily a pixel for pixel match. Yeah, it's still pretty fragile though. Yeah. Pretty brittle. So every time you create a new screen or reformat a screen or a new device size comes out, you potentially have to redo all your tests or new OS update even I mean yeah yeah change the f system font and or system font you know, all your tests are messed up status bars now look a different way or you know whatever yeah. uh, the change may have been so it's 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 one of those things that like you know you do as much as you can knowing that there's this point of diminishing returns and you, you just don't want to overinvest because you can easily turn that into a whole team of people just writing and maintaining automated tests for a sizable project. And some companies do that, and they're reasonably successful with it, but it's, it's definitely an investment. Yeah, like in general, I don't think it's the concept is 
an all bad concept. It's it's just that the iOS UI testing stuff is still a little bit flaky. It's not as it's not as good as like all the tools that are out there for a lot of um, websites like Selenium and all the tools they have to test stuff. Oh, even those were never great. I'm like I've been at companies that have the expensive uh, automated testing tools that you, know, you spend tens of thousands of dollars on licensing and training. Uh, and they'll do a great job of writing the test for that first release, and then the project becomes is no longer a capital project. It's now an expense, and they don't have a budget to maintain the, the tests, and they end up starting to fail, and nobody keeps them updated. Nobody runs them out after that. Um, so it's like even those have their problems, and even those were fairly brittle. So you guys have... You guys have heard the story of the three little pigs, right? Where the pigs and the one built the house out of, out of straw and the other one built it out of sticks and the other one from bricks. And I always, somebody a long time ago gave me this analogy that UI tests are the house of straw. You can build it pretty quickly and in iOS, it's that's probably subjective, but um, you can build these UI tests pretty quickly. Uh, the coverage isn't going to be that great because of all the, the the amount of tests that you would need to actually get full coverage at that level of integration in your code. But then it's also the most brittle. It's also the, the easiest to knock down. And then at the next layer down, you've got integration tests. And that's kind of the, the house of sticks. It's a little bit more durable, a little stronger, a little harder to build. Uh, still not that great, but a good middle ground. And then at the, the lowest level, your unit test level, you have the house of bricks. And the unit tests are your most resilient tests. Yeah, if you, chances are if you break a unit test, you're either doing some heavy refactoring and the code is supposed to change or you broke something and changed something that you shouldn't have changed. And, and I think you know right away that you broke it. And I used to think, you know, when we were working on web applications and we were using these tools, I used to think part of the issue was unit tests. I could easily refactor, I could get compile errors right away. Yeah, I got that tight feedback loop and development cycle where the UI tests tend to be living outside of the application, usually written in a different language, different tools, so there's no way to easily refactor them. Uh, so, I, you know, I looked at alternatives like some fit-based testing that in theory would let me use the same like JUnit type of structure and refactor, but you know, I, I think there's more to it than that. Like, you know, we don't even have refactoring Swift at all, so so I don't think that would necessarily there's any good. At least their UI test and Xcode, if you use what's built in, it's at least the same code, and you do get you know well, similar tooling. At least it's Swift code that you'll have to migrate next fall. <laughs> yeah. And part of 
what another part of the challenge uh, with the UI testing is, you know, most applications talk to a backend, whether it's an API or data store or something. So there's this whole kind of setup procedure to get the environment set up so you can either talk to a dummy backend or um, have some sort of staged environment where you can have the, the deterministic type of test. So, you know, predictable, you hope. predictable outputs, inputs and outputs. Um, so there's a decent amount of setup that potentially goes along with that. And we've seen uh, companies invest quite a bit of time in building basically a whole framework for dealing with that, mocking out the, the back end so they can do their testing. It, yeah. And I think, you know, long story short, there's value in it. It's just figuring out where to draw that line and, and what to test and knowing that it doesn't replace that manual visual QA step. You know, that's, that's something you just I can't, can't skip. Word. <laughs> Argo, what does A-Star do as far as automated testing any or UI testing, anything? Um, we, we invested a little bit in, uh, whatever the JavaScript one was, what was that called? UI automation. Um, and we never got around to updating it, uh, to UI testing. So we don't really run anything, um, right now. And, and like you said, they were just kind of some let's do some basic things. Actually, we're, we're about to redo a bunch of our screenshots. So maybe we'll revisit that. That, that to me is a more, it's more, more, uh, more useful. useful use of UI testing is, is kind of automating some, some tasks that are very repetitive. Although at this point with the uh, new media manager, where you can like use the bigger size images to fill in the rest of them, it's, it's not even as useful as it, used to be for that so right and you're you're only localized to english right so you don't have to worry so much even about other languages yeah we just have like uh paid and free versions of all of our ios apps and then we have the ipad the iphone well then the, the three apps it's normally like one release so it's always like six apps and all the different stuff you need to do for each of those so it's kind of a pain but still yeah, definitely worthy of some automation. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. We'll see what we do this next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it also depends on how often you release, right? If you're, or release you're... and make big changes to yeah. the screenshots, because we've had basically the same screenshots for a while at this point. True. Yeah, if you're releasing every four or five months and your screens aren't even changing that much, then doesn't seem like it's that worth that yeah. worthy of a task to to update or to automate but right after say facebook going every two three weeks then yeah could make some sense mm-hmm. so uh speaking of automating things alex you uh have a little something yeah yeah one of the things i've been playing around with is how they kind of speed up um, the development of new projects. And, you know, we kind of have a preferred setup for a project that is very different from the uh, built-in project templates. And 
Yeah, this is necessarily a new problem. You know, being a consulting company, we start a lot of new projects all the time, and I think even even people who aren't in consulting companies probably spin up new projects for experimentation and having to rework the project structure and configuration tends to be a little bit tedious of a task if you're doing it every time. Uh, so went looking for different options on how to do that. I looked at project templates, you know, Xcode has the concept of project templates and theoretically you can kind of copy an existing template and create your own. But it tends to be, it's a very kind of convoluted structure. A lot of your code goes into a plist because it may have conditional logic in, in the template file and uh, you know you might have variations. In fact, I think there's an expectation that you'll have both an Objective-C and a, and a Swift variation for project templates. So that, that's kind of convoluted and I, I think uh, AF Networking had a project template at one point. I got a little nervous when there was a bug report that said it. Uh, uh, some folks who would use the project template with a specific version of Xcode ended up uh, deleting their project history, which seems kind of weird. Yeah, it doesn't uh, make any sense. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of a weird little defect. Um, it just did a get init on their repo. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure if it just like deleted the history from Xcode or what or whether it you know did something else, but uh, I, I don't I don't think it was uh I don't think it cleared the git history, I think it cleared like project history inside of Xcode. Yeah. Um okay. I, hopefully it didn't actually delete delete any files, but um so one of the alternatives I looked at was liftoff, which is maintained by ThoughtBot. That kind of had the same concept I was after, um, but it's a very opinionated approach. I think it still messes around with the Xcode project file um, to do the setup. And you have to start to worry about you know, every different version of Xcode, potentially liftoff will break. and there's a lot of moving parts there, a lot of scripts that, that are involved. and um, it, They made it in a way that it's not too difficult to tailor to your own design structure and setting, but um, you know, it's, it's a, I think it's a combination of like Ruby and, and shell scripts. I remember it was very strict about, um, or very um, picky about what warnings it made into errors. And by default, it made a lot of your warnings for your production compile errors, but not for your, your dev compile. So you would go thinking, um, I'm in, a good, in good shape here. And then you try to compile a archive release and you've got 20 errors that you have to get through. So that was a little... That was probably my main beef with that project. Yeah, and I think you can turn that off and you change the settings. But um, you know, I, I was about to just kind of give in and, and go down that path, and then 
but I heard that uh, they were thinking about not supporting it anymore uh, because it's become a little bit too cumbersome. I don't know how much they use it internally anymore. Uh, so Gordon on the Built Phase podcast mentioned that they were looking at using Cookie Cutter, uh, which is a Python utility for generating products, and you can essentially point it at a template in a Git repo or a local template project, and you know one command, and it'll it has kind of a mustache style template. Uh, variable replacement, so you can templatize a, a project. Uh, if I set that up, um, it's pretty easy to do. And you can still, even after putting the placeholders in, you can still open the project up and, and tweak it and modify it and keep it in GitHub. And then it's just like one line command to generate a new project from that template. And you can point it at other templates as well. Um, an Android template or something with using the same tool. Uh, so kind of use that to set up the default folder structure, set up the get ignore, you know, readme file. Uh, something I've been kind of leaning towards lately is using the XA config files to manage product settings by, by the build configuration. So if you want to have a different environment, that your app is pointing to for debug versus release, or you can create a one for beta. Uh, so rather than having separate targets, use actually config files to manage those different uh, different parameters. Well, can you yeah. even have separate app IDs? Does it work with that? So like you'd have a a dev app ID. Um. I don't think, I think if you wanted to do that, you'd create a separate target. I don't think you would try and pull that off using just config files. But if you want to have the same project structure build for different environments, mostly for testing purposes, then I think that's a good approach. But otherwise, if you're actually creating projects that need to have a separate bundle identifier, then, then you'd want to use targets for that. And, but you can huh. use these in combination. Um, you I know, think we, you can use the XC config files. Uh, it's not something I've looked into recently. I've read about it in the past. And it's really more beneficial if your project is more in a uh, maintenance phase rather than a it's not ever been released yet phase. So if you want to, it's really, I've been in a situation where I've been running dev builds on my phone and then somebody comes back and says, Oh, this is doing this weird thing in production. Do you know anything about this? And then you have to go and install a production version of your app from the app store and overwrite your dev builds and it just gets to be a, a pain. Yeah. So there's kind of pros and cons to it. Like, you know, part of the reason I don't like the multiple targets because because you do end up with copies of the configuration files, uh, and you have to worry about target membership 
so it's there's there's a little bit of house cleaning there. Now you can still move the configuration into these config files and and share it. So it's not like a mutually exclusive idea. Um, but yeah. you, you would still have to worry about target dependency, and if you get into that, then like, and I think you've done this, Sam, in the past, was move that move most of your code into shared libraries, and, and just and, that is and, super fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's pros and cons to those approaches, but um, kind of long story short, the cookie cutter scene pretty easy to use and it's got pre and post hooks so it doesn't do it doesn't manipulate Xcode really at all it just does some variable replacement and then uh, you know in the post hooks you know, we're still using CocoaPods on most of our projects so it'll do the pod install at the end and um, do some basic setup for us so it worked out reasonably well Oh, it sounds sounds helpful, and if nothing else, people can can fork it and make their own templates to their own desire, or at least use yours as a example. Makes me want to start a new project. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it'd be great if Apple provided easy to create custom project templates in Xcode, but with Alcatraz no longer working in Xcode, that gets a little bit harder and. Um, there's you know, just the way the project templates work. It's it's quite a bit of effort. And this was pretty easy, fairly easy to update as well. Yeah, we'll check it out. We'll have a link to it in the show notes as well. One last thing uh, for this episode, kind of want to do a shout out to Mobile Couch. They just aired their final episode. Episode ninety, yeah. Episode ninety-eight, I believe, is the final. I I think they should have done an even one hundred, but um, yeah, they ended on ninety-eight and kind of did a bit of a retrospective. The the two guys. Do they have um, the third guy that had yeah. to leave? Did he was was he there yeah. too? Yeah, so he came back for the final episode, so they kind of reviewed kind of their history and in, in programming and. Uh, it was a good episode. Sorry that uh, we're not continuing. It was one of my favorite podcasts. But that, that field of uh, iOS podcast is shrinking, which is unfortunate. But yeah, there's a, been a few of them recently that have dropped off, and and Mobile Couch was definitely one of my favorites. I'm sad to see that one go. Uh, iOS, another one, just recently aired their last episode so it's the field is getting smaller yeah, it's a normal thing i mean there's this whole concept of uh, podcast fade like you know most con podcasts eventually kind of fade off um especially if you're not getting ad sponsors so it's more of a something you do for fun rather than something you get paid to do it's easier to to keep it going when you're actually making money from it. Right. Or I guess it, it's easier to justify the time investment. <laughs> There's that. Because sometimes it yeah. can be a little rough. Like, I have to do this 
I made a commitment. <laughs> Somebody's paying me. Yeah. Versus, right. you know, us, we just kind of, we're going to have these kind of conversations, whether we're recording or not, and just because it's something we're passionate about and, and like to discuss. Yeah. And for the most part, I think, Argo, you and I have both got our editing process down, except for yep. maybe when I miss a step. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's not too bad to edit an episode. Unless we have a lot of pauses and ums in there, which depending on, on my mood anyway and my diligency, I try to take a lot of those out. Even though things like it can vary. <laughs> yeah. Especially towards the end, you might find more pauses. But yeah, Overcast takes out a, out a lot of those. So I'm sure our listeners don't even notice the ones that we do miss. Yep. Well, that was depressing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but definitely thanks, guys. Thanks, Mobile Couch guys. Jake, Jelly, a.k.a. Daniel, and uh, Ben. It's been a pleasure listening to you guys. Well, that's all the thank yous we have. <laughs> so you uh, want to tell us where we can find you on the internet? You can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter. I'm at Alex Argo. And I'm at Sam Quarter. The podcast is at Shared Inst. And you can find our website at sharedinstance.com. And uh, part of our conversation tonight was sparked by the chats we've had in our Slack channel and you can get a invite to that at chat.sharedinstance.com. Hope to talk to you there. See you guys. See ya. Later. <laughs>